Welcome to Troubleshooting Innovation, a commercial baking podcast. I'm your host, Joni Spencer, Editor-in-Chief for Commercial Baking, and I'm speaking with Stephen Hallam, Brand Ambassador for Dickinson & Morris and Chair of Judges for the Tip Tree World Bread Awards, which will take place at IBIE 2022, September 18th through 22nd in Las Vegas. This season, we are exploring the principles of artisan bread baking that can and should be incorporated into commercial bread production. Our first episode revolves around the fundamentals of commercially producing artisan bread. Stephen, thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited to speak with you. Hi, Jenny. The honor is mine. So we have a lot to talk about when it comes to artisan bread baking and lessons that can be learned for the producers of commercially made bread. And specifically with IBIE right around the corner, something that I find really important is that artisan bread bakers, artisan bakers in general, and commercial bakers are coming together at IBIE under one roof. And I think there's so much that both sides can learn from the other. So we're going to dive into artisan bread baking. And the first question I want to ask you is, what are the most important product characteristics that cannot be lost when a baker is commercially producing artisan bread? I think one can write a book on this, but to keep it sort of salient and brief and focused, whether you're a small producer, a large producer, artisan or commercial, A loaf of bread should give satisfaction to the consumer, to the person that is buying it or being given it. And they're going to eat it. It should be nourishing uh, and they should like it. So for a loaf of bread to, first of all, have a good appearance, I'm talking broadly now, which can be dangerous um, because there's all different types of bread and loaves, etc. But whether we're talking sourdough, uh, whether it's a holler, a pretzel, a, a, a tin bake loaf, oven bottomed, or whatever it may be, it will have an appearance. It will, and it needs to look good. And it's only going to look good if a number of criteria in the whole process of making the loaf of bread have come together. Yes, we have the flour, but we rely so much on the miller to be presenting us as bakers with a flour that is consistent and that's a challenge in itself because the wheat or whatever other grains are being used into the grist are grown every year in sort of different conditions and we tend to take for granted that we open the bag and the flowers there but a huge amount of effort and skill goes into producing consistent flour for us and straight away, I'm assuming there's a blend of wheats. I say wheats, there could be other grains as well going into the flour. Latterly, we, there's a huge interest in just heritage grains, old-fashioned grains that through whatever reason are no longer used. And, and they're coming back to the fork because they're giving different characteristics to the flour. There's that. And then you're going to make a dough, the sort of water you use, that's important, the the yeast, whether you're using yeast or not, whether you've got a, a sponge, a sourdough, a starter, a bigger, call it whatever you wish, but some means of adding extra flavour to the dough. If, if it's 
let's say a traditional sourdough, your yeast, your fermentation will come from your starter. You won't be adding extra yeast. So all, all of that needs controlling and you're going to make your dough. How long you're going to ferment it for and you're going to keep it. So the longer you ferment it, of course, the more flavor there will be. That will also affect the structure. So when you're mixing your dough, ensuring the flour has sufficient water so that it produces the protein that you need that will be the structure of the loaf. Mixing time is fairly crucial, as is the water absorption. And you're going to leave it to ferment. And then when you're going to mold it, if you haven't got all these parts right, when you come to mold the loaf, protein won't have the right tension in it it won't hold up to how you want it to look it may be if it's a very long fermented sourdough that you're not going to mold it so you need to treat it with much more care and uh, it could have an extremely high rate of of hydration so a lot of water in there so it's very sticky so you've got to treat all of that then you're going to give it what maybe it's final proof it's final rising in domestic terms that could be done overnight it could be done over a day or it could be done in a speedier environment where you've got a warm cupboard or, or prover or what have you then you're going to bake it and if you say you've overproved it you let it go too long then, then you may not get the effect you want to see in the oven uh, the oven needs to be the right sort of oven with the right sort of temperature and you're going to effectively bake the loaf and, and the baking should be just so it shouldn't be overbaked in other words burnt but it shouldn't be underbaked so it's soggy it should be even not baked on one side and underbaked on the other there's an enormous amount of skill to getting the loaf into the oven and then it's got to be baked correctly if all of that hasn't come together correctly the loaf itself will not look particularly attractive and probably won't be bought uh, in, in a shop or, or wherever and i'm only here talking about the external criteria we weren't talking about the appearance when you actually feel the loaf you've got a crust on there if making for example a baguette and you're baking in steam to give the outer surface of the crust it's eggshell sort of very thin but lovely uh, crispy crust and when you pick the loaf up and you, you can feel it well you'll you'll be smelling it straight away there's no better product i think in the world that can appeal to all of your senses it's a natural phenomena isn't it when you pick a loaf up you're going to squeeze it in the uk the, the millers have what's called a squeeze test where they're replicating what housewives do when they go and buy a loaf of bread they squeeze it over here in Europe, most consumers are expecting it to be soft. So if it's not soft, they'll, they'll put it back and they'll reach one that is soft. When we come to cut the loaf, you're feeling the knife going, first of all, through the crust and, and you're listening to that. Depending upon the type of loaf you're making, you know, if it's a holler, for example, it's, it's not going to be crispy, but the appearance should be bold. It should have a lovely glaze. You'll be looking at the, the plats. Uh, and it'll be quite soft inside. So you, as you're cutting, you're taking all that into uh, consideration. And then you'll have a, an aroma coming to you. And you're going to be looking at the texture inside. 
you're going to be uh, looking at the softness of the crumb, its resilience, and then the all-important taste and flavour. We have a way with, when we're assessing and judging a loaf of bread, to take in the aroma and, and uh, take in the flavour in one. So aroma, yes, that comes through our nose. Flavour really comes from the tip of the tongue. So with cut surface of a loaf of bread, you'd hold it up to your nose and you'd squeeze. And at the same time, tip of your tongue, just touch the surface of the loaf. And you've got all your olfactory senses happening at once. You can straight away pick up the length of fermentation, how much effort has gone into getting flavour into that loaf. The softness of the crumb and the resilience, you're not going to get that unless all the different elements of the process, the flour's right, the mixing's right, the water absorption's right, and, and some flours that contain a lot of very strong gluten-forming proteins take longer to mix, they take more hydration. And if you haven't developed that enough through longer mixing, then the result will show in the finished loaf. It's really amazing that we're talking about a product that comes from four ingredients, flour, water, salt, and yeast, yet it is so complex. And one misstep can completely change a product or getting everything just right can create a really amazing experience that, like you said, it touches all four senses. I can't think of many products that come from something so simple that are actually quite complex. If we look at the renaissance that artisan bread has experienced over the past few years, I think it started before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic definitely kicked it into high gear with so many consumers trying to make sourdough in their own homes. What advice would you have for a commercial baker who wants to bring artisan bread to consumers who don't have the skills to make it in their home without just getting on the bandwagon? How can they really take this seriously and create a good loaf of bread in a commercial facility without just saying, we want to get on that trend? Well, I think you touched on something very interesting there, Joni. In the pandemic, lots of people had nothing more to do there at home um, bread is the staff of life it is simple it is easy to make there are hundreds of books about the mysteries and science of bread making but you're right there's just four ingredients but keeping it simple that's what a lot of people have discovered that it's very therapeutic when you're making bread yourself with your own hands at home and if you scale that up and you're doing that in a micro bakery commercially, you're still using the same principles. Instead of lots of pairs of hands, you'll apply it to a machine, but you're still using the same ingredients. And the challenge then becomes to replicate what you're doing by hand with a machine, but not taking away the benefits of the natural ingredients. It is a proven fact that naturally leavened bread is better for your digestion. You digest it better than maybe some breads that have been processed extremely quickly. And by taking a shortcut of 
processing quickly, something is being added to the doughs to speed that up, to take the shortcuts that the natural process of fermentations, gas produced, it stretches the dough, it stretches the protein, it softens it, it allows it to become extensible and uh, elastic. So consumers have sort of gone back, I think, to or have rediscovered what basic bread is and what it tastes like. Now, the, the crumb structure, um, it may be more open. It may not be perfectly white in colour. Quite a lot of consumers, if they're asked what their vision of a, of a loaf of bread is, they'll say something nice and white and soft. Well, to make it white, you're adding extra things into the process to do that. And it could actually be uh, longer mixing or more water so that that action actually bleaches the flour in a, in a natural process. Once upon a time, we used to have agents that were added to flour that would bleach it because people liked white bread. Just the basic principles of allowing nature to take its course and then introducing steps to control that. Uh, you can have too much fermentation. It can become too acid. The, the effect of the uh, acidity can break down the very thing that you're trying to uh, develop and protect in there, the protein. So it all falls apart. And uh, sometimes you can't have enough. So you could taste a loaf of bread and it's where there's been very little fermentation in it or there's, there's no sour or sponge or what have you. And there's no flavour. It's just serving as a vehicle, a slice of bread as a vehicle to put something else on. Or you can make it stand out by letting the fermentation happen, adding extra sour to it, but controlling it. Controlling it means watching your time and watching your temperature. Because if things get too warm, it, it can just race away with you. Right. When you think about consumers' preferences for clean label products, I mean, I, I'd say it's probably been in the past 10 years that consumers have taken to label reading. And I think the term clean label was probably an industry term before it was a consumer term, but it's really what they were trying to do. And I believe that this resurgence of good bread came out of the clean label movement. Again, if we go back to what we were talking about, the four simple ingredients that only takes four or even three ingredients to make a good loaf of bread, that is quintessentially a clean label product, right? I totally agree. Why have we become so infatuated of um, making things last a long time and in their natural state, they're not designed to do so? I, th I think you have a classic example here of distribution. An artisan, a craft baker, they're making the bread and they're going to sell it. They're going to sell it there and then in the shop, the farmer's market, uh, what they make today, they'll sell today. And it's not going to get wrapped, sliced, a use by or a best before date on it of 10 days time because it's got to go through a distribution network of uh, whatever that may be the vans to go here and then to there and delivered on the other side of the country. To enable that to happen, things have got to be put into that loaf of bread to uh, give the impression that it's still a fresh loaf of bread or keep it saleable. 
not just during the transport time, but when it gets to the other end and the consumer's bought it because the consumer doesn't want to buy it with, well, interest, I was going to say, with just a day or two's life on it. But, hey, go to France. And, uh, you know, traditionally you've got all your bakers baking twice a day because the baguette that you bought for breakfast, due to the, the quality of the protein, um, would, would be quite hard and tough and you wouldn't consider eating the same same baguette in the evening. Over time, that has changed because milling methods have improved and wheat varieties have been introduced to so that the, the protein, if you like, has been nurtured and adapted uh, to enable let's be just one bake a day and not necessarily two. Yeah. I'm happy that you brought that up, the distribution, because I was actually just yesterday speaking with a European baker who their company has come into the U.S. market and distribution was one of the biggest things that they had talked about in how they had to change their process because of the drive time. Like you said, commercial bakers are not selling what they make that same day. They have to be put on a truck, they go to a distribution center, then they get sent out to the retail locations and put on a shelf. And so a lot of time has passed by the time that bread gets home to a consumer. And then the consumer, American consumers want their stuff to last. They want their bread to be able to sit in the kitchen for a week and have the quality the same as when they purchased it. And that's sort of a double-edged sword for a baker, don't you think? I do. Uh, I think there's an enormous amount of education to be done of the consumers to say, you know, you, you can't have your cake and eat it. You know, if that's what you really want, then you've got to change your shopping habit. You need to be supporting your small local artisan craft baker because that's the difference. They're not having to change their product to suit the purpose. Yeah. And this European baker that I talked to, I mean, they said that they did have to sort of adjust their process, but they were very, very choosy about how they do that, that you don't just add any sort of shelf life extender in, that they're very choosy about how they adjust their recipes in order to um, accommodate for distribution without compromising the quality. So, I mean, I do think it is possible, but I don't think that it's something that a commercial baker should take lightly by any stretch of the imagination. No, there's some things you can do that have huge, huge effects. As soon as you wrap a product, you introduce what's known as ERH, equilibrium relative humidity. So this is the humidity that's in the bag. So between the wrapper and the actual product. Now, um, that's if there's a high humidity in there, then you're going to uh, get mold, surface mold, quite quickly on the product, even though it's wrapped. So that can be controlled by the environment where you wrap the loaf of bread. So take, for example, if you're just wrapping it in a bakery and it's close to where you're making everything. There's lots of flour in the air and it's all being done by hand. That wouldn't be the best scenario if, if you're wanting to extend the life of that loaf. Because when it comes out of the oven, it's sterile and the environment through which it passes is quite crucial to prevent surface-borne 
let's say, infection from, from mould or what have you, or from the people that might be doing the wrapping as well. The product needs protecting. So you can have the product wrapped on a machine and it's gas flushed. There's something about doing that for a loaf of bread that doesn't sit comfortably with a lot of people because the idea is to um, eat it, not keep it. You know, it's not a motor car that you want to keep for two or three years before you, or however long it might be before you exchange it. We're talking about a loaf of bread here. When you go to a restaurant for a meal, you know, you, you eat the meal there and then. You don't take it away with you to eat four days later, do you? Um, That's a good point. Just just a sort of off-the-cuff uh, scenario there. But there's, there's other ways as well of extending the shelf life, and salt levels are one. Just by slightly increasing the salt level in the product can dramatically reduce your equilibrium relative humidity. Uh, something that's particularly prevalent in cakes because they have quite a high uh, sugar level and, and uh, that mould loves, of course. Um, but that's not to say creating a problem by having too much salt in it. There's, there's a lot of uh, focus on salt levels in food per se uh, around the world. You know, it's, it's not good for the ticker, is it? Too much salt, this, that and the other. But there is a balance and uh, salt in food it is there not just to enhance flavour, it, it does have an astringent action on protein. But there is a balance between having sufficient for its technical purpose and sufficient for flavour purpose, uh, as opposed to too much. When you're wrapping, you've got to start doing things to loaves of bread that um, you wouldn't otherwise do. Right. So there's another thing I wanted to ask you about. You've mentioned it a couple of times, and that is the wheat. Can you sort of enlighten me on your views on how some of these varieties of wheat can impact the quality of an artisan loaf of bread? Um, well, hugely. <laughs> Do we have time? <laughs> yes, yes. I've got to better write another book. <laughs> when we talk of flour for bread making, you immediately think wheat. The, the white flour comes from the endosperm. That's the white sticky stuff inside a grain of wheat when you bite into it out in the field as you do as a child and you're walking along. And, and the miller's job is to extract that and, uh, and dry it and, and convert it into this flour. And, and if you're going to use the whole grain, the germ is generally removed. The germ is the powerhouse, if you like, which when conditions are right and the grain is planted and the moisture is there, etc., etc., it sends a little signal to everything and it all starts growing and the radical starts, the roots start coming down and the plumule goes up and it's the endosperm, which is the starch that feeds the whole process. And you end up with the, the plant of wheat, which is quite remarkable when you think of what it's all come from as one little seed one little grain. Now, where the wheat is grown and how it's grown can have remarkable attributes to the final flour. So you could take one strain of wheat, you could grow it in Canada, you could grow it in, in uh, Amer America, you could grow it in Europe, and the resultant flour will be hugely, radically different. Right. Uh, the conditions of where it's grown and how it's grown will affect the amount of uh, 
gluten-forming protein that is in the grain. It's not necessarily about how much of uh, this protein is there, but it's about the quality of that protein. So for a long, long time, European wheats produced quite poor quality uh, flour. The protein level was very low. Nowadays, it's much, much higher. But the actual qualities that flour has, or the qualities of the protein when it's made into bread, is very much poorer than similar flour that comes from the prairies and uh, from Canada. Different wheat varieties have different strengths, let's say, in terms of different proteins, different amounts of starch, etc. So the, the miller will focus on that to get the right blend, what we call a grist, by mixing different grains together to give a consistent result. For, for the flour they're making and you may want a very strong white flour because the bread is going to be baked with no support so it's going to be oven bottom baked it will also need strength for the uh, for the molding process so when you come to mold the dough um, there's a tension there and, and you, you can see the tension being built up as, as, as you mold it tighter and tighter well if the protein hasn't got the qualities needed to do that it, it will just relax it'll it'll just flatten out which is not what you want added to this is the flavor that uh, the flour gives and there is a, a lot of interest at the moment of returning to some old varieties of grain that have long since disappeared but they're giving different textures to bread they're giving different uh, flavors different appearances and there's a consumer demand for that because it's in the mind that it's purer, that it's cleaner. We go back to the clean label again. There's a reason that perhaps they've been outbred and no longer around. You know, the, the desire to make things quicker, make things in inverted commas better. So it, this sort of redefines what you mean by better. People are becoming much more conscious of their own health. And the number of papers about uh, what we should eat, how much we should eat, the effect of our digestion because of all the various fast foods, let's put it in that category, that we're eating, uh, as opposed to simple foods. And you can't get anything much simpler than bread made in its raw state, in, in its original state. So we then come back to what consumers want. Well, I think the majority of consumers want, want a loaf of bread that satisfies their desires. But there, there is a, a growing percentage of consumers that are more interested in eating less, but eating better. Um, not just wheat from which bread can be made. We all zoom in on wheat because wheat contains those gluten-forming proteins, gluten, gliadin, and globulin, in greater proportion uh, than any other grain. But with an understanding of the science behind fermentation, other grains are beginning to be used. Gluten is a... And people that have an intolerance to wheat gluten has been a huge catalyst, I think, in the use of spelt. Because spelt is actually, as an example, it's the precursor to the wheat. It's the oldest known grain, certainly in Europe. It was there thousands and thousands of years ago. 
and spelt. Yeah, that contains gluten-forming proteins, but the bread made with spelt can be assimilated by people who have a weak gluten intolerance. Because most intolerances to gluten are for wheat gluten. Okay, Stephen, I have just enough time for one last question, and I want to kind of bring it back to IBIE and the Tip Tree World Bread Awards, where you are the chair of judges. I do think that this event, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time that this competition is coming to IBIE. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So the... the uh... The World Bread Awards in the USA was launched about five years ago in New York. It's sponsored by Tiptree. I'm very grateful and are a big uh, internationally known British brand focusing on jams, chutneys, preserves, etc. And we, we've come across to uh, IBIE, who are co-partners in, in the awards together with the American Baking Society. And it's essentially about promoting bread because there are no other awards in the USA that celebrate bread and that's important really all too often um, we, we read on the news for anything to be newsworthy it needs to be something that's gone wrong generally <laughs> right. and, and, and uh, across the world you know people can be so slow to celebrate success but as soon as you do it's not just the product that gets the focus it's the people behind it and in terms of the bread awards, it's the loaves that win. You know that there are different um, categories for, for different types of loaves, um, and each loaf is judged again against different criteria: uh, their appearance, their crust, and bake, their texture, their aroma, their flavour, uh, and it's always the loaf that is assessed, not the people behind making the loaf, the bakers the chefs etc yes they will get the praise for having made the loaf but it's the loaf that's the hero yeah and that's why i'm i'm so fascinated that this event is happening at, at ibie because i do see it sort of as a an intersection of the artisan bakers and the commercial bakers and like you said it's it's about the loaf and not the the person or the company behind that loaf Yes, I think any business always needs to focus on quality. You know, there's no business that can survive by uh, reducing quality. There's no brand or business out there that in the long term has gained by reducing quality. You, you might benefit in the short term by reducing quality on something, but, but in, in my world and the world of bread, it, it should be a no-no right from the word go. It, it takes absolutely no longer and uh, hardly saving any expense at all to reduce your quality. So you should always look to, be do to do better and improve. But, you know, as businesses grow, and we always looked to aspire and do better and get bigger. Oak trees come from acorns, don't they? You know, things start small. And as a craft baker, a micro baker to begin with, somebody that started as a hobby and that hobby then turns into a business and then they've got to find another hobby to do. If they have time, if you're a baker, you'd be lucky um, to begin with. And uh, at an event like IBIE, it's the ideal exposition 
for aspiring craft bakers to come to to see where they can head and how they can improve and and, uh, how they can do more. And it will be up to them how they incorporate that into their uh, business. So there's lots and lots of bits of kit now and equipment that satisfy the, let's call it the intricacies of a craft baker. The first thing a craft baker is going to be upset about is not doing it themselves with their own hands. But you've, you've got to know how to do that to be able to use a machine effectively and adjust that machine as opposed to uh, buying a machine because you've been told it will do X, Y, and Z and press a button and stand there and it doesn't do that. Well, if if, if you've got that, that craft knowledge to start with, whatever the machine might be, or a piece of kit or oven or what have you, if you've got that, that knowledge, it's going to put you in a hugely strong place. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. And that is exactly what I hope to accomplish in this season of troubleshooting innovation. Stephen, I, I want to tap into your expertise to share with commercial bakers to sort of get back to that artisan mindset because I do think that that will help exponentially in an automated process. So I'm so excited to dive in over the course of five weeks with you as we lead up to IBIE and the Tip Tree World Bread Awards to look at all of these principles. So I'm excited for the coming weeks. And I think next week, we're going to focus on something that you you mentioned, and that's time and temperature and the criticality of that in the process. So I'm excited to dive into that with you next week. Looking forward to it too, Jenny. Thanks for listening to Troubleshooting Innovation. I'm Joni Spencer, Editor-in-Chief for Commercial Baking. Tune in next week when Stephen Hallam and I discuss time and temperature, two of the most important factors in scaling up artisan bread production.